0: A science story, huh?
1: Is NYU a scientist? Uh, I, it I felt, felt I right. I so and I just high. thought, oh, well. I
0: figured it, out. Wow. it
2: was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're bringing you stories about that magical moment when a new life is brought into the world. Whether the new life in question is of the human or the turtle variety. Our first story today is from Ed Pritchard. It was recorded back in the before times in December 2019 at the Open Stage Club in Miami, Florida. After a multi-day storytelling workshop supported by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation. The theme that night was oceans.
1: So it's the summer after my undergrad, and I'm back in my hometown of Jupiter, Florida. Um, I'm sitting on the back of an ATV, and I'm cruising along the beach. It's at night, it's pitch black, um, and the driver of that ATV, her name is Kelly. And Kelly's a badass. She's a sea turtle biologist, and her and her research partner, Chris, um, they've dedicated their life to studying sea turtles, specifically the leatherback sea turtle. For those that have never heard of leatherback, they're the largest of the sea turtle species. And they're not like kind of the sea turtles that we, I mean, we've we seen in movies, Crush from Finding Nemo. They're much larger, they're, and they're, they don't really have the shell that a, a loggerhead or a green turtle has, you know, the ones that we're used to seeing. It's a leathery, it's like a really rubbery skin, and they can grow from about four feet to about the size of like a Volkswagen Beetle. So they're these giants, and they're prehistoric. And so Kelly and Chris have dedicated their lives to this, and we're out there. Uh, Kelly has offered me a helping hand. She's offered me this job to help her on this leatherback project. And so her and Chris, they go out every summer, and they hunt for leatherbacks. Leatherbacks, the females, they come up on the beach uh, during the summer months to lay their eggs, um, and is a really important place for that. And so Kelly has offered me this job as a field tech. It's my first field job. I'm excited, but I'm nervous. Um, never worked with these charismatic species that, you know, I've grown to love. Um, but, you know, I'm also just anxious. And so I'm riding on the back of this ATV and we're headed down the beach looking for our leatherbacks. Um, it's like my first week of training. Um, and we're looking for a track in the sand. We're looking for a track that shows that a female has come up to lay her eggs. Um, what do we do when we um, come up on these turtles? Uh, we have to basically get important data, but do it in a way that's respectful to these animals because they're up there doing something really, you know, important and a very private moment. Um, and so we have to get up there and we have to uh, get them at a time when they're basically, they get into this trance and they're just... Um, they've dug, you know, they've done their thing, they've gotten up on the beach and they just get into this transit. They have to do one thing and it's to lay those eggs. So we get up there and working up a turtle, we tag them. So we're tagging, putting little flipper tags so we can identify them if anyone catches them or um, if they come up on that beach later, um, a different year. And we also have to measure them because we want to know how big they are and how big they can get. So. How do you think you measure a turtle? And I asked Kelly that. And she's like, well, you just got to straddle it. So you basically just have to get on either side and, you know, spread out that that tape measure. And you're basically straddling this giant. And you're like, oh, I'm trying to be respectful. This turtle's trying to lay their eggs. I'm right on top of you. So a little awkward. And, you know, so... You know, flash forward two weeks, and so I've learned the process. I, you know, we've gone on, you know, we've gone out there. We've seen a few different turtles. We've worked them up. Some of them are ones that Kelly knows really well. She's gotten really close to these animals. They all have names because they name them. You know, not just the little flipper tag with a number. Um, and so, you know, she knows some of them. Others are new, which is awesome, and we get to work up a new turtle. Um, but I've I've learned the process. I'm still a little bit scared, you know, because I, you know. It's still coming up on these beasts in the middle of the night. Um, It's still a very, you know, walking that fine line between being respectful, but also getting that important data that we need. Um, But finally, the night comes and Kelly says, you're ready to go out on your own. You're ready to ride on this ATV on yourself and find these turtles. Um, I'm just like pumped, but still just really nervous. Uh, So we cover a nine mile stretch of beach. It's a very wide beach. Um, so one of us goes north, the other goes south. Um, so I go south. We start around 8 p.m., um, you know, and I'm out there. And and it's you're working in these adverse conditions. It's it's the beach at night, so it's you know it's dark. It was a new moon that night. Um, sometimes there are things that are happening on the beach, and you know you have to <laughs> have to be aware at all times, pretty much. Um, and so. One of the other things that happens during that time, we're out there in April, there's another species that comes up, I mentioned the loggerhead. They're another species that's important, it's endangered, they use that beach you know, for nesting, we have to be respectful to them. Um, but that's not our focus. We gotta get to where we need to go because we need to catch this leatherback. So it's basically like Mario Kart. You're like riding on this ATV down the beach, all these green you know, green shells around you, trying to you know, avoid the green shells. Um, and, you know, you see some stuff on the beach, some promiscuous stuff. You know, there's people that go to a dark beach for that. Um, and, you know, there's weather and there's all sorts of different things out there. So it's 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 draining. And the nerves are still working. And there's nights where I, I have some mistaken identity. I see something dark. And, and we use these night scopes to help us. So, you know, I'm cruising on the beach, you know, finger on the throttle um, with the night scope. And... You know, sometimes it's, you're mistaking it for a dune or a rock or a log or people having sex. <laughs> so, you know, there's definitely that mistaken identity. But the night goes on and, you know, I Kelly gets two turtles. She texts me on the other side. She gets two turtles on the other side, but I'm still looking for that turtle. And then I see a track and, you know, my I'm ex- pumped and I get out the night scope and I'm, scanning the track up to, you know, up to the top of the beach and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking to see where in the process she is of nesting because we don't want to interrupt her if she's still digging because that can spook them and cause them to go back to the water without laying their eggs. We don't want that. And I noticed that she's, she's digging. She's taking her front flippers and she's literally pushing the sand behind her. She's carving out this body pit so she can kind of get lower in the sand so she can start digging her egg chamber. So I noticed that. I text Kelly. I said, you know, I I just got this hurdle. I think she's just body pitting. We have time. And so I'm just sitting there on the ATV quiet and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for her and she finally finishes that part of the process. I'm okay, she's ready to dig her egg chamber. She, She does that with her rear flippers. So she takes the rear flippers and, you know, gets down into the sand and They dig out this body pit, it's about, or this uh, egg chamber, and it's about this wide, and it's about two feet down. And so I'm waiting for her to make that motion with her rear flippers, and I'm looking through the night scope, and usually you can see her body move a little bit in the rear. I don't see that. And so I'm just waiting. I'm waiting to see what she's going to do next, and I'm waiting. And I started to get nervous. I'm like, "Well, what is she waiting for? Why is she still not in that process yet?" I text Kelly. I said, "I don't think she's, you know, digging that that egg chamber. I'm gonna get a little closer. I'm gonna sneak up behind her." And uh, you know, I get a little closer. I, I use we have these red uh, headlamps because white light uh, distracts the turtle and it bothers them. But the red light, they don't see very well. So I flip the the headlamp on. And immediately, um, I get a reflection back from the metal tag on her front flipper. And I know, okay, this turtle's been tagged. And I get the number from the tag. And then I'm scanning back along her body. I want to know where she's at now, or where she's at in the process. And as soon as I get to the rear, I notice something's off. Something's not right. And I text Kelly, I say, I have the tag, it's a tag turtle. And she's missing her rear flippers. And all I see are just nubs where these slender, pretty long flippers are supposed to be. And I text Kelly that. And she says, oh, it's Clover. And now I'm on the phone with Kelly. And I'm like, what's Clover? What's Clover's story? And she's like, I'm with another turtle right now. And I'm going to get there as soon as I can. But you're going to have to start digging. You're going to have to dig her egg chamber. And I'm like, I know what that looks like, but I'm, my heart leapt out of my chest. And I'm just, you know, adrenaline. And I get down on my hands on knees. And um, I know I have to be a turtle midwife for her. <laughs> and so I start digging. Like, leatherbacks are usually very meticulous. They take one flipper over the other and they scoop out that sand one at a time and they carve out this little chamber. I'm just freaking throwing <laughs> sand everywhere, digging down. I'm, yeah, just wild. And I finally, I'm, I'm digging. I know it has to be about two feet. And I'm at my shoulder now, I'm digging. I'm at my shoulder and then I feel this warm. Warm, moist thing just drop on my arm and roll down. And I know she's ready. She's ready to start laying those eggs. And, and it drops into the hole and I just kind of leap back and I, you know, I just sit there and I, I watch her and she's, she's breathing really heavily now because she's in that process of dropping those eggs and she's, um, these turtles do something when they're laying their eggs, they start crying, not because they're in pain, but because they're on the beach where it's really dry. They're not used to that kind of environment. And they're also covered in sand. So they cry to, like, moisten up their eyes and to get that sand out. And so there she is just, you know, crying and, and breathing. And I'm in that moment. And at some point, Kelly comes up and she tells me Clover's story. Clover, you know, had uh, when they first got, spotted her, she was missing one rear flipper, she got it got taken off by a shark. And then at some point over the next few years, the other one got taken off by a shark, because at some point she got really, she wasn't able to be as agile. And um, she's like, you know, uh, we work up the turtle, we measure her and do all that stuff, and then we just kind of w- sit there and wait for her to finish that process, and she ends up dropping 115 eggs. and we start to see the little nubs move again because she's ready to start covering that nest. And so we get down on our hands and knees and we help her with that too. Now we're both turtle midwives. And, you know, we cover up that nest and then she does, her her, end of her process is to take her front flippers and throw sand to camouflage. So she starts doing that and it's starting to get light out because it's way early in the morning now. And um, so we watch her, she gets up and or she starts to crawl back and I'm just amazed by you know how how much fortitude she has because she's had so much trauma. And now she's doing what she instinctually knows what to do, and she's creating the next generation of turtles. And you know, I lent her a helping hand that night, um, but I know that you know for that species to really survive, you know, we all need to lead, you know lend that helping hand for her. So thank you. <laughs>
2: Ed Pritchard. A native of South Florida, Ed has fostered a love for the marine environment since an early age. He holds a master's degree in marine conservation from the University of Miami. As an interpretive programs lead at Miami-Dade County's Eco Division, Ed develops and leads immersive citizen engagement programs that promote awareness and foster stewardship of our local environment, with an emphasis placed on our marine and coastal resources. Ed's ultimate goal is to use effective science communication and education initiatives to inspire the next generation of ocean stewards. Before we continue with today's episode, a few reminders. Don't forget we have outdoor shows coming up this spring in cities like Atlanta, New York, Vancouver, St. Louis, and more. Find out more at storyclider.org shows. And don't forget that our big annual fundraiser, the Proton Prom, is coming up in Brooklyn on June 1st. Tickets will go on sale next month. More details, like the lineup, will be announced over the next few months. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. You can find out more about that at storyglitterorg workshops. Finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like all of us at The Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We are also, for the first time ever, selling merch on our website. If you would like to buy a Story Collider hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storycollider.org store. Your purchases help to support Story Collider's work. We're so grateful to everyone who helps to make our work possible. Before we move on to our second story, I just want to quickly share something that has been really an honor for all of us at the Story Collider this past week. StoryClider was recently the recipient of Bronze and Silver Anthem Awards in the category of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for our work fostering diversity and inclusion in STEM through storytelling. We could not be more grateful to our collaborators at Boise State's Micron School of Material Science and Engineering, as well as the Scientist Spotlights Initiative, our storytellers, or to all of you who have supported our work over the years by listening and donating and coming to shows, you all have made this possible. So thank you, and I hope you join us in this celebration. Our second story today is from Story Collider's senior producer Ari Daniel. It was recorded at the Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the Before Times in January 2020. The theme that night was trails and tribulations.
0: Nana, my mom's mom, filled my little life with magic as a boy. She called the local playground a castle, and she introduced me and my younger sibling to the most extraordinary cast of characters. Nana herself was a kind of character. She, uh, she, she dyed her hair a bright red, the color of autumn ablaze, and she wore every hue of the rainbow, each of her clothes was purchased at a discount with matching costume jewelry to boot. She fed my imagination, like the time that she told me uh, that, uh, that much of who we are is due to the genes in our body. And I remember sitting in the back seat of the car, hearing her say that, imagining in my head countless pairs of tiny Levi's jeans coursing through my bloodstream. Even Nana's birth date was a sing-song, September 18, 1918. Nana was my first library. Stories poured out of her. One of my favorites was when she was in her 20s and living in New York City, and she was on her bicycle, uh, presumably in Central Park, and she came careening down a hill, nearly crashing into and colliding with this guy at the bottom. And that guy, a total stranger, went on to become my grandfather. And when the two of them moved into their home in Cleveland, he announced, Martha, we're gonna wallpaper the living room with birth certificates. Evidently confident of their collective fecundity. (laughs) There was the story that I loved to hear her tell and that she loved to tell about her time during her career as a nursery school teacher, when she had the kids go around in a circle and have each one move their bodies in a different way to the rhythm of the music. And the first kid clapped his hands, and the second girl stomped her feet. But halfway around the circle, Nana's heart sank. A little boy sat in a wheelchair who could barely move. But he looked up at Nana and said, I can blink my eyes. Nana was so touched by that little boy because he was proof to her that children have profound things to teach us. And as for me, every time I heard that story as a kid, I'd feel a glow inside, because I felt like what Nana was telling me was that each of us has a special gift to share with the world, even when we're children, maybe especially when we're children. Nana had so many ways to tell me that she loved me. Your beauty blinds me, she'd say. My heart is going to burst out of its brazier," she'd declare. <laughs> which was a racy thing to hear as a kid. She told me I'd be so popular with the girls that I'd have to fend them off with a stick, which did not happen. I dated on and off, but mostly I was single, and there was no stick required. I think back to the way my grandparents met, and I thought, well, maybe all I have to do is just crash into some young woman on my bicycle. Uh, But then I'd realize that's not the way the story worked. I was the one who had to be crashed into by the girl, and call it a character flaw, but I've never been one to throw myself in front of oncoming cyclists, no matter their eligibility. (laughs) In early 2008, in the winter, Nana passed away. She'd been living with dementia for nearly a decade at that point, and although her memories had faded, the core of who she was endured until the very end. Kind loving and gentle. I was a few months uh, bef- it was a few months before I was to defend my PhD dissertation and so I wrote to my advisor to tell him of the circumstances and I'll never forget what he wrote in reply. Ari, these are the times when we realize what's truly important. Go be with your family. So I flew home to Cleveland for the memorial And my mom, who'd been with Nana almost right up until the end, told me that she was amazed that just as Nana's body knew how to live all those years, it also knew how to die in those final moments, all written, presumably, in those genes in her body. So I flew back to Boston, I finished my dissertation, and a few months later I defended my PhD, and I dedicated the whole thing to Nana. It was later that year that I started falling for this girl named Hanwa. She had a huge heart and a fierce sense of justice. She sang and she loved being outdoors and, and she was into languages. She even loved to bike. So all things seemed to be pointing in the right direction. But given my lack of experience with the ladies, I didn't really know if she liked me in return. And before I knew it, it was September 18th of that year. Nana's birthday, and I figured something special was going to happen. But the day came and went, with nothing. The next night, however, we had our first kiss. And I like to think that Nana was too busy running around in heaven or wherever she is to help us out on her actual birthday. But her schedule freed up the next day, and she helped bring our lips together. A few years passed, and Honwa and I got married And we decided we would start a family of our own. Wallpaper our living room with a birth certificate or two. And Hanma took the pregnancy test and I filmed it. But the results were negative. As they were the time after that, and the time after that, and the time after that. We couldn't quite get our heads around it. Both Hunwa and I are real planners, so the lack of control was disorienting. You see, when it comes to ovulation, timing matters. Blink and you miss it. So Hunwa studied her internal temperature fastidiously, and I obsessed over dates when I could go out of town for work trips. And we argued often, mostly about the timing. And each time the topic would come up in conversation about those dates, it was like knifing open the same old wound. We 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 stressed out about it. And the more we stressed, the more we would think about how stress isn't good for pregnancy and that would just stress us out even more. And so we each cast about. My younger sibling counseled me, it's amazing how much the little ones have to teach us before they're even born. It's the kind of thing that Nana might have said. We were a year in by this point with nothing to show for it. And so we took a deep breath and we got tested. One of my numbers was off. One of Renoir's numbers was off. We were tied. And so we graduated onto IUI, intrauterine insemination. And wouldn't you know, it worked. The first time Renoir was pregnant. And within a few days of us finding out, she told one of her sisters in person and my face flushed. That embryo felt so fragile that I dared not speak of it aloud for fear of extinguishing that flicker of life. But gradually, the weeks stacked up, and the baby became viable. We went in for our big ultrasound, and the technician danced through the measurements. I looked on in awe, until my eye snagged on something at the top of the screen, the date when Hunwa's pregnancy began. September September 18th, 2015. Renwa and I decided that we weren't gonna find out the sex of the baby in advance, but truth be told, I wanted a little girl more than anything. And so when the night finally came and we were in the delivery room and Hunhua gave that final push and our baby came tumbling into the world, the nurses asked me to announce who we were welcoming it's a girl, I whispered and wept to Renoir. We gave her the name of Layla, which means night of occasion in Arabic, and the middle name of Martha, after Nana's first name, Martha. Layla's three and a half now, so I've told her about Nana, and she's told me that she wants to meet her. And I just know how much Nana would have celebrated this little girl and cherished her and sung to her and made her feel like the best version of herself. But Nana's not here anymore. So instead, I look at Layla and I tell her, Nana's inside you. And then last spring, it's the morning of my 40th birthday, and we're in the car. I've got some music on. We're halfway to Layla's preschool when she announces from the back seat, Dada, I'm singing with my eyes. And I pull over and I look back and I see Layla beaming from ear to ear, blinking to the rhythm of the music. And there was Nana, a twinkle of magic, shining through my daughter's eyes. Thank you.
2: That was Ari Daniel. Ari is Story Collider's Boston-based senior producer. As a graduate student, he trained gray seal pups and helped tag wild killer whales. These days, as an independent multimedia science reporter and former senior digital producer for NOVA, he works with a species he's better equipped to understand, Homo sapiens. Ari has reported on science topics across five continents and is a co-recipient of the AAAS Kavli Science Journalism Gold Award for audio. In the fifth grade, Ari won the Most Contagious Smile Award, and I can vouch for the fact that, to this day, his smile does indeed remain contagious. The Story Collider is so grateful to Ed and Ari for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider with help from Education Director Nissa Greenberg, Managing Producer Misha Gayeski, and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Gastor Almonte and Christine Gentry, and by Catherine J. Wu and Ari Daniel, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with a special Pi Day episode, hosted by managing producer Misha Gayeski. In the meantime, I want to share that I was recently invited to guest co-host a limited series from the creators of Airspace, which is a podcast produced by the Smithsonians National Air and Space Museum. It's called Queer Space, and it features stories and people at the intersection of aviation, space, and LGBTQ history and culture. I'm super proud to share the episodes this team has put together. You can find it wherever you listen to Story Collider. Until next week, thanks for listening.